Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Hey, welcome to After Party Pod. I am your host, Anna David. After Party Pod is a division of After Party Chat, the website about the lifestyles of the sober and occasionally fabulous. Uh, It is a website that deals with all aspects of addiction and recovery and teaches you, hopefully, that sobriety and recovery is not the end of life, as I certainly once thought it was, but, but the beginning. And so, yeah, hey guys, how are you? I, um, my goal, because I want to be honest with you guys, is to hate doing these intros less. And the reason that I hate doing them is that I, I feel like I sound bad. And, you know, obviously talking about these things can sometimes help. Maybe arguably not a great idea to talk to you guys about it because it, it could put that thought in your head. My God, I hate the way she does these. And, you know, and, and why come off insecure? But the truth is that I'm self-conscious about my voice. And I am self-conscious about my voice because I have been told that it's annoying. And nobody ever told me it was annoying until, until um, I got sober. <laughs> and, and you'd think that my voice would become far less annoying. Um, but, but somebody said that. And then, and then I was, when I was doing television, people would write that on the Internet. I, I read on a website called Television Without Pity which is a really funny website, uh, that I had a face, no, sorry, that I had a voice made for writing or something like that. Ugh, I'm forgetting it. Anyway, I thought it was funny that, that my voice, which I'd found, you know, inoffensive at most, uh, had really bothered people. So, so anyway, I'm trying to get over that. Um, and, and, and you're hearing me do that now. Um, and, and I want this to be a, you know, a podcast and a place where we can talk about, we can tell the truth. Hopefully, um, my guests tell the truth. Hopefully I tell the truth. Um, and, and, and so that, so I'm telling you the truth and it's not that I want you to email me and say, Hey Anna, you know what? Your voice is great. I wouldn't, I definitely would not object to that, but I'm not asking you to do that. I am just telling you what's going on with me. Now, my uh, guest today is a fantastic, fantastic guy. But before we get into that, let's talk about the song. The song you heard and that you will hear hear the instrumental version of at the end. It's called Welcome to the After Party by the very talented Seth Rothschild. We love him. We love that song. Now, my guest today uh, is a man named Jeff Kober. Now, Jeff has been acting for a long time and has been in literally every television series. Um, 
He started off in V in the Twilight Zone. He was on Falcon Crest, MacGyver. He's been on Burn Notice. He's been on China Beach. That's where he really became famous. Uh, he has been on Law and Order. He's been on Buffy. Right now, he's on Sons of Anarchy. He has worked this man. He um, is not just an actor, though. He's a photographer. He's a painter, and he is a meditation teacher. And Jeff Kober and I learned meditation from the same guy, Tom Knowles, who we speak about a lot in in the interview, and we just call him Tom. So I realized that. You guys might be totally lost. It's Tom, T-H-O-M. Maybe you want to go Google him. I don't know. K-N-O-L-E-S. Oh, God. There might be two L's in Knowles. Anyway, um, he, uh, he taught us both meditation, not at the same time. And Jeff uh, then went and became a meditation teacher and is a revered meditation teacher. He has taught meditation to many people I know. And um, he's such a wise, cool, smart guy, which you're about to find out in this interview. So I hope you like it. I'm sure you'll like him. And, you know, I hope you keep coming back to this podcast. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. I just said something very funny, which is why you're laughing so hard, right? Yeah, but, but it was charming. Okay, good. It was charming. Even better. Uh, such a delight to sit down with you. Oh, you too. I, um... Now, I, I first became aware of you uh, as, well, as a meditation teacher first and an actor second. Okay. Which is interesting, uh-huh. I think, because I don't think that's, I don't know, but I think, don't think that's how most people come to understand Jeff Kober. Yeah, probably not. Um, but we learned meditation from the same guy, mm-hmm. and you took it. Much further than I, I did. I needed to take it much further. So, okay, so so talk to me. I would love to just go through who you are, how you came to be the man you are today. I know you're from Montana. I am from Montana. So, like, real, like, farming? Farming. Farming. I was, I was a farmer. You literally... I literally was a farmer, yeah. Lots of animals growing up? Uh, the, a, lot of, a lot of animals, a lot of dogs. I, I used to sleep in a bunkhouse surrounded by three dogs. Uh, one, my Newfoundland lay in the doorway, and he was like 150 pounds. No one was coming through him. Yeah, and then, guard dog. Yeah, guard dog. And then one was down at my feet, and uh, that was Josh. And Josh had smoked a little too much weed at college with me, so she was a little jumpy. And she well, had a Josh, male name. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, That's kind of cute. Kind of cute. So um, wait a minute, but I was still picturing you as a child. You've already been to college. Oh, and, this is and, yeah, I've, a college dropout. Okay, college dropout. Bringing Josh. Josh was a dropout too. Apparently. Josh. Josh was. A, well, Josh never would have even made it into college. I'm yeah. afraid. Yeah. Well, never make it to class. I'm imagining. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so okay, so so Billings, Montana. Yeah, right? outside of Billings, twenty miles. 25 miles west of Billings in a, on a farm, yeah. And, but okay, I was picturing more animals than dogs. Oh, there's, yeah, lots of cattle, Cat, a few horses, okay. some pigs. I had a pet pig. I had. Uh, it sounds yeah. idyllic. It, it, was it, it? That part of it was idyllic. Okay. You know, and working with cattle was extraordinary. There were, you know, uh, there were times when, uh, you know, calves were trying to be born and they, you know, on a young heifer and she couldn't get the calf out and I'd have to be, you know, uh, shoulder deep inside a cow, pulling a calf out. That's, yeah, I mean that you, you, that's life changing. Yeah, you know that's. How did you learn to do that? Just one day you, it was happening. It and just, you just, I just did it. Yeah, yeah, I just did it. So you no could one, deliver a human baby. 
But yeah, well, I, I have. I could. Okay, and you have. I mean, I haven't actually delivered. I've coached. I've right, coached. right, 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 right. You didn't pull. I didn't pull, and, yeah. and usually human babies don't need pulling. Um, <laughs> well, okay. So, so you were doing that. That was your. That was your childhood. That was my childhood. But you know, Montana at the time too was a completely different place. How? It was really. Uh, it was. Th- there was no real communication the way there is today with the outside world. And things would happen in California, then 10 years later they would happen in Montana. They would just sort of drift that way. And there was no, you know, the only music that was there was AM radio stations when I was growing up. Right. Um, of course there were no computers. Uh, and, yeah. you know, there was the Encyclopedia Britannica. You've got the newspaper. The Billings Gazette. And, okay. You know, and it, it was good for local news, and it was just—it was a very strange uh, experience compared to today, where there was the thing was that there was no one telling me or anyone else, for that matter, this doesn't have to be your life. You can go do something else. Right. And and then when you have when you've learned not to be able to make those kinds of decisions for yourself, you, you feel kind of lost for a long time. And, and you know, my lostness took the form of uh, you know, pushing down the feelings with chemistry. Recreational. Recreational. Scientific experiments on your yes, body. Yes, indeed. Um, and plus, Montana is a place for drinkers. It is, it it's, is. Yeah, big drinking place, yeah. So, so it's funny because I always will say when, when, um, People will try to say to me, well, Los Angeles made you an addict. I mean, in L.A., everybody's doing drugs. And my line was, is always, look, even if I'd been on a ranch in Montana, I would have found the ranch hand that dealt cocaine on the side. Yeah, you would have. Um, but, but, okay, so that's, so, but, okay, but so you were, you were doing that. And, and how did that start for you? How'd you learn to do that? How did it start? Boy, you know, I watched the adults drinking, and it looked like I needed to do that. Yeah. My very first drunk actually was as an altar boy at the Lutheran Church, and I noticed that the uh, you had to fill the chalice with wine, mm-hmm. and whatever was left in the pitcher got put back in the bottle. What was left in the chalice had to be disposed, disposed of. Up. So I would make sure that I got the job of filling the chalice, and when there were only a couple of parishioners left to take communion, I would fill it up. And right. then at the end of the service, you I had said, to I got it. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I drank this, it was actually Mogan David wine, which is a whole other thing. I don't you know? even know what that is. It's, it's, a, it's, it's Mogan, it was, a, it was a really cheap bad wine. Right, right. Um, but I walked out onto the steps of this Lutheran church and it was a spiritual experience. I could see the sunlight dancing hmm. in front of me and I looked at these old German women there and with love. Mm-hmm. And it was it was really Was it your first spiritual experience at church? Yeah. Really? It was. Yeah, it was and, actually. And how old were you? I uh, you know I was like 8th grade whatever that is like 13. 12, 13. 12, 13 That's a good time like to that. start, right? Yeah. It's kind of late, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> by by some standards. I started smoking at four and a half. You so did it. I did. I lit my first cigarette at four and a half. Yeah. How did you do that? I don't know. I, I was a firebug. I used to light fires. Yeah. How, and you just found some cigarettes? Well, no, they dug it out of the ashtray. And right. Oh, those were some of my firsts. Well, I wasn't nasty. very particular well, they about were it. they nasty. They were so nasty. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but I, you know, I, I thought it's funny. I was just telling somebody today that I remember being an aspirational full-time smoker. I remember smoking a cigarette at 15 or whatever, uh -huh. and and I was driving and I was looking in the rearview mirror and I was thinking, someday I'm gonna be a, a literally a full-time <laughs> smoker and I'm gonna be so cool. That's I thought that, and when I quit, you know, I guess about 12 years ago, I kept thinking of that, going, this was a choice. I wanted it. Wow. I wanted that. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, wine, and then you realized that was a solution to problems, or you did? Was it not really like that? You just felt good. It just it felt really good. Yeah. And I wanted more of yeah. that. And you know, and so whenever I could, I did that. I got thrown out of school once for doing that at the High wrong school? time. High school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, you know, just. The, the the truth of my you know like I was looking to have that feeling I needed that feeling from a very young age and sugar was probably my first drug, and uh, and and then alcohol and then I I, I, I had a, a a tragedy that occurred you know when I was like fifteen. What happened? Um, it was a traffic accident. Someone died and um, I wasn't responsible, but I felt responsible mm. and um, I. I just that was that moment where the world gave me exactly the uh, version of what my mind had always told me that I was separate, different, and mm. apart from. And that's when I really accelerated. But was that you? That's what you made of it because of well, that's accident. what I made of it. But you know, no one ever spoke to me about it. Right. Uh, I came from a really small town, and the entire town was sort of like. Talking about it? Talking about it and not talking to me about right, it. Right, right, right. You know, so everyone was in on something that I was the, you know, the, so that was the odd man out. Right, you know? right. So. That's interesting. I, I had a similar situation that my dad got in a lot of, I was not from a small town, I was from San Francisco. My dad got in a lot of uh, trouble. It was on the front page of the paper. And everybody was talking about it, but nobody was talking to me no about it. No one was it. talking to you about it. Yeah, yeah. you were absolutely, it's, it's, it's weird, right? It's and I do remember one person came up to me, and it was really obvious that her mother had told her to. And she said, I want you to know, let me know if there's anything I can do for you. And I was so much more uncomfortable with someone saying something to me mm. that I, w I was like, I wish she would just do what everyone else was doing and not say a word, uh, which is interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, okay, and so then you went to college. Did you go to college there in Montana? Yeah, in Montana. It's, I was not very good at college. Uh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't great at it myself. Um, so were you, did you know you wanted to be an actor? No, not even a little bit. No, I just, I went to college because that's what you did. And yeah. I, I was just, I was just lost. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, I went to college for about a year and a half and then just, it petered out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Then I joined a carnival. What does that mean? Uh, Not literally. Yeah, yeah. You did? I, I sold corn dogs for the Donnie Love Traveling Concession Show. Um, so you, <laughs> you weren't actually performing in the carnival. No, just I was performing as a corn dog. I was selling corn dogs and those deep fried burritos. Uh, I've never had one, but I kind of oh, wish I had. They're kind of nasty. And uh -huh. and corn on the cob with fake butter on it. Uh huh. Uh huh. I, I worked the uh, the Mardi Gras. You were a carny. Uh, yeah, I was. There's a great thing with carnies. If you're in trouble, you just yell, hey, Rube. <laughs> and suddenly everyone shows up, some of them holding 
tools, like hammers, things like that. What does that mean? It means I need help. Hey, Rube, why? Hey, Rube, I have no idea. A Rube is a, uh, a Rube is, would be like, if you came to the carny and I was selling you a corn dog, you'd be the Rube. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, did you ever need that tool? I did. I, uh, I, I sold these two uh, drunks from Wisconsin, I think, uh, corn on the cob, and they asked if that was real butter. I said, of course it's real butter. And of course it wasn't, and the guy threw a beer on me. And so I yelled, hey, Rube. And uh, I remember that this was like, this was 1975, and there were a lot of, uh, this, this one particular guy, Kiko. Uh-huh. We lost Kiko when the FBI came through looking for draft dodgers. Um, and Kiko showed up with a, a hammer down by his side, the side of his leg, and uh, DA showed up, and, and Ratso, and... <laughs> Um, and then uh, we got I, I didn't beat the guys up I, we ran into a cop as I was you know, so chasing the guy down. comes with the hammer he's going like, to mess guys, somebody up did they run away or they, they were like trying to walk away and then I got a cop I said, I said this guy threw a beer on he said oh that's assault <laughs> he said you can send him to jail and of course I didn't because right. it's a cop and here's the guy but you, know. but you won I did win, but I was still wet. You know, it didn't really count. <laughs> well, but, okay, so I, I would think that a carny is a good career choice for someone who's into drinking. No kidding, especially New Orleans. You yeah, know, it oh, was, yeah. It was, it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So, um, so you kept doing that for how long? I didn't do that for long. I okay. did that for, a, you know, like a season. Right, right, right. One winter season. Um, you still remember all their names. Which is impressive. Well, how can you forget Kiko and DA? It's Ratso. kind of like you couldn't have made up better names. No. So then you said to yourself, "I need to do something with my life." Yes. Okay. So I went back to college. Okay. And and then uh, still in Montana. In Montana, okay. but a different end of Montana. The first was at in Bozeman. The second was in Missoula. Missoula was more hip. Yeah. Was, uh, a little more easy. A little, fewer rednecks. Yeah. Um, I fit in a little better, right? And I started studying, and I just—I was just, you know, and I—I I ended up just playing a lot of trombone um, because that was the only thing that gave me comfort. I was just not comfortable in the world. Mm -hmm. And I remember—I remember. Here's here's a college moment for okay. you. Okay. One of my best uh, concoctions was I would uh, smoke hash and uh, take amphetamines and drink and then hoof ether. Okay. Because my roommate was, uh, 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 he was in veterinarian science and they used the ether to kill fruit flies. Uh-huh. Um, and it really is an, an amazing kind of a high. Um, but you, and you get a lot of space when you go to a bar because you smell like ether and people are like, dude, you know. <laughs> um, and I was watching this table filled with uh, fraternity and sorority people. Mm-hmm. And I would watch, and someone would be, would be telling something, and everyone would be leaning in, and all of a sudden they would burst into laughter. And I would remember leaning against this post at this college bar and wondering, how do they do that? Because huh. I had no idea how to do that. Were you because you were by yourself with like the window? Because I was by myself window. with the ether window and and unable to feel joy. Unable just unable to do it. I was the drugs and the alcohol allowed me to feel numb. Right. It allowed me to, you know, push the sorrow and suffering away, but I was never able or all not never, but almost never able to 
do that, to have that kind of freedom. And so, and so, and, and drugs and alcohol didn't help you to, to have, even you, get there. You know, there's a, this, this uh, you probably know this, but there's a, a great letter that was sent from Bill Wilson to Carl Jung. Um, I don't know that I know this, yes. So uh, in, in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a story of how Carl Jung was treating a man. Oh, right, right. You know, uh, to get over his alcoholism and wasn't able to help him. Right. Because he'd been trying to induce a spiritual experience in this man. Well, this man ended up getting sober through the Oxford group. Which was the predecessor which is to Alcoholics Anonymous. predecessor to Alcoholics Anonymous. And then... Uh, he in turn got this other guy sober named Ebby, right. who then visited Bill Wilson and helped Bill Wilson get sober. Right. So when Bill Wilson retired from public life, he wrote a letter to Carl Jung saying, you were part of the inception of this whole program. And Carl Jung wrote back to him and said that the alcoholic is trying with the alcohol to have a low-level spiritual experience. Right. And he says it's not by accident that in Latin, the word for alcohol and the word for God is the same. Spiritus contra spiritum. You know, in order to fight one's addiction, one right. must call upon another form of spirit. Right. So. You know. And it's that's it's so interesting because of course, I certainly didn't see it that way back in the day. I, I, I you know, I was raised Jewish. I spirituality was not something, even though I grew up in Marin County, it's kind of like they're into that thing. Yeah. But I, and you know, for years, I think I resisted recovery because I, I was like, oh, those are Jesus freaks. Those are those like scary people who, you know, who, who chant and stuff like that. And, um, I had no idea I was capable of being a remotely spiritual person or interested in spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I would have ever had I not sort of taken drugs and alcohol as far as I did. Had you not needed to do so in order right. to get... And, and I remember when, I, when I, I went to rehab and I remember my counselor saying to me, he said, you know, when my first days there, he said, I'm going to say something to you and I don't want you to be offended. And I braced myself thinking he was going to say, oh, you know, you're really bloated or, you know, something that I considered insulting. <laughs> and he said to me, you strike me as spiritually dead. And I said, oh, I'm not offended. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what he meant. So I was like, oh, don't worry about it. Oh, that's all, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. And he said to me, I mean, and this man completely changed my life. I mean, I literally credit this man with saving my life, Sammy Hess. Um, he said to me, um, you think you need to go to a church and, like, get down on your knees to have a spiritual experience. And, and he said, uh, my first spiritual experience when I got sober is I went to a, uh, a pet store and I played with a bunch of puppies. And he said, my second spiritual experience was seeing the sunrise on the beach. And it blew my mind. I was, what is this yeah, crazy yeah, man talking yeah. about? Those, that's not spiritual. I didn't, I, it was all so, so foreign to me. You know? I love that. Because, did you, so you grew up with So a, he made it approachable to you. To, completely. Yeah. But I, but I remember thinking, this man's off. <laughs> He's a little off yeah. in his thinking. But, you know, I thought he was often as thinking about a lot of things. He also told me that alcoholism and addiction were the same thing, and I very much was convinced they were not. Of course. You know? Um, but so, okay, so you you escaped Montana at some point. I, I did. I okay. did. Okay. And you got your way here to Los Angeles. Yes. And in Los Angeles, you did, what, did you, uh, how bad did the drugs and alcohol get? 
Well, they, you know, who's 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 gauging this? Because uh, on on one hand, um, I always kept them in check to so that I could. Uh, when I finally discovered that I was an actor and started pursuing that, I was able to use that to keep them in check. I'm not going to get high because I have an acting class. I'm not right. having an audition, you know. Um, but then toward the end, uh, it was, you know, it was like I, I hit one of the last uh, nevers. Well, I'm never going to do that. Yeah. yeah, I do that, but I'm never going to. Crack was one of my mm. nevers. And, and I, I headed down the crack highway. And uh, it, it got, it, that makes it really ugly really fast. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I would imagine. Yeah, it's just like a great accelerant, you know. Yeah, the e-ticket, the yeah, e-ticket to, really. to recovery. So, and so, and so you, you were able to change your life. How long ago was it? How long has it been? Oh, it's been, uh, well, it was 1985. So it's almost 28 years. And okay, and so you, when you came to LA, you found success as an actor pretty quickly. Not even, no. Really? No, because I, I, I came to LA and, and I wasn't even an actor when I came here. I, I followed a woman to LA. Right, right, and, right. And then You're I not was, the first, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, and then I was in a rock and roll band for a brief minute, and then I just, I was working as a temp, the only time I'd ever worked an office job. Um, Congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, look, I'm not office material. Come on. Uh, me neither. Um, and I didn't know what to do with my life because everything had fallen apart that I had going on at that time, such as it was. And I wanted to take a class because class made sense. You started here, you ended up here, you had a process, you got a grade, something. Yeah. And this woman said, I go to this acting class. I think you'd like it. So I went, you know. And and what was brilliant about acting was suddenly there was a place where all the things that made me absolutely socially inept and unable to be there were counted as pluses, like all the emotion I had trapped inside, the huge amount of rage and anger I had at being repressed, That's fascinating. You know, the sorrow of, of being alone on the prairie with your cattle and dogs, you know. okay. all that stuff was suddenly it was... It, it, there was a place for it, and you could channel it, and you were applauded for it. Right. And awarded with money and fame and all these things that our society values a lot. Yeah, well, it, 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 if you actually get to take it on the road, yeah. Well, but you've got to. Yes, I have. Yes, I've been ab absolutely blessed, yes. So, so um, you... So, so, so your first big thing was China Beach. Well, the first thing I the first thing I did was I did a movie called Out of Bounds mm -hmm. uh, with Anthony Michael Hall and uh, Jenny Wright, um, and I actually got sober two weeks into a ten week shoot on that movie because here's the thing you know it's like I was able to keep going forward because I thought. As soon as I get this, then everything's going to be okay. Right. I had this. This. Uh, I, I was so naive. I thought, you know, I, and so naive and so messed up inside, emotionally, mentally, all of that. I remember thinking that when I turned 21, everything was going to make sense. Mm. And I woke up on my 21st birthday, and nothing had changed. That was a really horrifying ah. moment for me. 
And then I had this idea that if I got a job in a movie, everything would be fine. I don't think that's so mixed up. I think that's literally what we are taught. It's what we're taught. You just get this, 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 and yeah. you're going to be happy. And then it's a grave shock. Well, and I actually, when I asked these guys, so do I have the job, I was watching the inside of my head All right, right, right. for it to change. Right. You know, rockets are going to go off. Right, right. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And then I couldn't get high anymore. I couldn't get drunk. I couldn't. I couldn't. It didn't work. So. So interesting. I mean, because I'm going through that. I'm whatever, 12 and something years sober. And well, and I, I remember, you know, because I, I sold my first book when I was five years sober. And I said, without a doubt, I saw the novel. I'm happy for life. Like that. That's it. Like kill me. You know that. Like that. And then it happened. And immediately I thought my second book it's all I thought and 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 I and it's really I would say that's like a big shift I had this year was kind of getting that like I've been swinging from branch to branch to branch it's just like okay this great job thing and this person and this thing and sometimes mm-hmm. a cupcake will do and sometimes it's a dress on sale but that it's it, this really getting that oh my god it has absolutely nothing to do with that stuff it's yes it's not even it's not even that it's not enough. It's like it's the wrong. It's the, it's, it's, the, the, it's the wrong. We're on the wrong jungle gym. Y- exactly. Yeah. And, and 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 it's nobody gets that. I mean, whatever. Not nobody gets that. I mean, I. I, I nobody's think, teaching this. Nobody's teaching this. Yeah. You really have to learn this the hard way. Yeah. I think. Well, yeah, because you're out there trying to do what society, your peers, everyone says you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. If you just had this, you'd be happy. Yeah. If you just did it this way, you'd be happy. Not. So you get on that job and you realize that you feel exactly the same. Oh, worse. Right, right. Because suddenly you, you, right. now you've got a lot to lose. You can fail. Right. And there's all this pressure and you're supposed to know what you're doing and you don't. And well, and also being able to pin your unhappiness on something is a great comfort because you say, oh, I'm only unhappy because I'm not working. Yes. You know? Yes. And then suddenly you're like, but what is this? Yeah, that's what going is on? this? So did you, did you have to go to treatment? Did you just do this No, I, you know what I did? I, uh, I, I, I had a car that I, I used to, <laughs> I used to, I, I went through like three cars where I uh, would buy a car for just a few hundred dollars and then not get it registered. Mm-hmm. And then just drive it until it had so many tickets that they towed, towed it away. Interesting concept. And, that's kind of brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I had one of those cars at the time. Mm-hmm. And I just, I got this idea. So I drove down to Union Station mm-hmm. and I thought I'm going to give myself three days to dry out. And so I got on the first train leaving the station. It happened to be going south. And this was like right after, it was after Christmas, but before New Year's. Um, depressing time of year. Depressing. But Even I, in it was LA. like, I knew that if I tried to stop after New Year's, I, yeah. I, I had a window of opportunity. Right. So I got on this train. It stopped in Del Mar. I saw a motel from the train. I got off and checked into this motel. And, uh, and, just quit everything and I also quit smoking oh, okay and I also thought I could lose a couple of pounds so I quit eating as well oh and I just took a lot of water into the room and I remember just like football games and parades sort of floating through my vision after a day and a half or two days I thought you gotta have something to eat so I started eating this is it. the worst detox story I've ever heard oh, honestly oh, it was, it was <laughs> horrifying had you told anybody this was your plan oh no no, no right, God, right, no. right there was no one to tell right and so and so then you then I, I was three days and that's you're good 
<laughs> so you took the train back, back to LA. <laughs> took the train back to LA, and uh, and you know, and then I I I met some people who were doing the same thing, and they were helpful. It's really hard, honestly. I mean, I know I know that my exposure to you has been limited. It's hard to imagine the person you're describing as you. You describe yourself. You sound like a wild animal, basically. That's that's not uh, that's that's not inaccurate. Yeah. It's uh, so. It, it. I mean, well, good argument for recovery, because you just seem so personable and like connected and peaceful and all of these things. Right? And I am all of those yeah, things. Yeah. And on a, on in some very real way, I am not different from that man have? that I was. Well, we had the same childhood. Right. You know. Um, and and. Was there anything about the childhood that, I mean, however much you feel like going into, like, do you, was, is alcoholism in your family? Was it? Yeah, there was alcoholism in the family. Right, right. Um, and, you know, there was a very definite alcoholic Al-Anon vibe. Mm-hmm. And, and the secrecy of it, and you n- never talk about it outside the home. And, and, uh, and of course, then the thing, again, it's like, you start comparing what you're seeing when you finally get out of the world and go, like, wait, it doesn't, oh, this is, there's something off here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's absolutely runs in families, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, there's always, a, from you know, I'm actually studying at UCLA, I'm getting this KDAC certification become a drug and alcohol counselor of all oh, things. Wow. I don't think I'm going to become a counselor. I'm just interested in, the, in yeah. doing this. Um, and, it, you know, it really, there, there's always a genetic component. I mean, I knew that, but now I, I really know that. I mean, they basically say, you know, if somebody says, oh, no, no, it's not my family, just keep looking. Because it's an aunt or it's a great-grandmother. Mm. It's there, mm. you know. Um, you know, I know in my family it was like, what? We don't, but, but, like, I think there's a lot of denial around my grandparents and the, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, the grandfather that died of, like, liver and kidney failure, you know, when he was 45. You know what I mean? And people aren't calling it alcoholism, but just because they're not calling it that doesn't mean it's not in the family. You know, we are so fortunate today yeah. to have a society. I mean, we, there, we went through a period of time in the, uh, I, I know in the, like, the, the late 80s, early 90s, where there was just way too much oversharing of what we come from, but... Now we live in a time where, because there's a there's a program called Adult Children of Alcoholics. Oh yeah, and it was it was a uh, it was still around. Well, <laughs> they, they used to in in uh, they they call it uncover discover and hang on to, right. you know, it because it was just like thing. people swimming in their in their uh, ickiness. Well, I do think that that is is can happen. You know, I know writing about recovery. I always am hearing. Uh, just people's terrible experiences with exposure to that stuff and and it it's really it's hard to you know I do think that some people um, get get change their lives and do swim in it and well, that's the best thing but, to but do. The, the point is that having gone through that yeah the, as a society we're at a place now where at least the people that I know, and it's like, yeah, I had uh, uh, an issue with drugs and alcohol, and I don't today, and that is not seen as uh, a, 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 a shame, a flag of shame. You know, it's not. Yeah, it's like not at all. It's just, it's oh, okay, good, okay. For where we live. For uh, yeah. For you know, where and we what live. we do. Yeah. 
because, um, you know, I feel really lucky that, you know, I got, I got sober in the year 2000 where in LA, where it was like every other throw a rock and you're going to hit a sober person. And so it never occurred to me that I was supposed to be ashamed of it uh-huh. until I'd already started telling people. And, 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 you know, and then I, I, I've lived in New York in my sobriety and it's, and it's very different even New York city, Manhattan. It was, there was, there's so much more shame around it there. That was wow. my experience. I, 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 can, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. Really surprised me. And so, so I mean, who knows what it's like in Montana, et cetera, you know? Yeah, I don't even know what it's like. It's, uh, I think it's probably still pretty, uh, it's seen as on the other side of the tracks in Montana. It's yeah. It's still kind of pushed to the side. And... But I know, I think we're incredibly lucky. And, um, and that's sort of why I think I do what I do is I my ideas about what this was going to be like a sobriety that just sounded it sounded like the end of life uh-huh. and I think since yeah. we are around at a time where people are talking about these things try to tell people no it's not like that's your fear I mean it, it really you have no idea what life can be it, yeah you have no idea yeah and this is this this is one thing that I always like to make clear when I'm talking to someone who you know, hasn't had the experience that I've had, which is that, you know, the spiritual awakening that is necessary to uh, be able to put down drugs and alcohol is doesn't have to be, you know, like your friend who told you it was puppies and it was a sunset. It doesn't have to be this white light experience and that the, what it actually is, is awakening to the spirit of what we are, the, and the spirit is the essence of what we are. It's the deepest part of what we are, and it's that part of us that's never been touched by any of this outside stuff. And what we end up awakening to is we awaken to that part of ourselves that is other than our thoughts and our feelings, other than the part of us that needs to take a drink, other than the part of us that needs to feel differently, needs to change things in order to be okay. There's a part of us that's always been okay. And the spiritual awakening is awakening to an actual feelable experience of I am that. Right. And that's 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 the extraordinary thing that you get when you're willing to put these other things down. Right, that it has nothing to do with some guy in a robe in the sky. Yeah, uh, at all. Yeah. At all. That's a conception. And this is like a, a perception. This is a a, a, a kinesthetic experience of you know inside that's like oh wait I'm the thoughts are going on out here I don't have to listen to them yeah what they're telling me to do I don't have to do what they're telling me I am it's been the same thing since I was you know five years old right. it's the same voice it's just gotten a lot more sophisticated right it's still saying the same crap about who I am which none of which is true right so. It takes a long time. It took me a long time to realize that. It took me a long time to realize I had a voice that was telling me scary stories yeah. I was believing. Yeah, sure. I, I remember when I realized it, I was like, are you kidding? You know, it was when I was living in New York, and it was like, my sponsor, uh, the person I was working with, had me write down what was a nasty thing I was telling myself. Uh-huh. And it was a real thought. I had to write it down to figure out the difference. Wow. You know? Yeah. It's, um... It's it's really nice not to to live that way. Not to be at the mercy of that voice. To not to know that there's a voice. Even yeah. To trust your brain. 
You know, I mean, like it sounds pathetic, but when I trusted my brain, God, I was miserable. You know, I, I, I would, I would, I would, I would change that just and a little me. bit by saying, when I took my thoughts as the beginning and end of my experience. Right, right, right. Because it's still my brain. It, it, it's there's a great book called Meditation by Mark Williams, or, uh, Mindfulness, excuse me, by Mark Williams, in which he describes what I would call speculation, which is it's using the mind for something it's not designed to be used for. And in that he says, you know, we have this analytic, analytical problem-solving mind. Right. It's absolutely brilliant. Like, when you leave here, traffic is going to be a certain way, yeah. and you're going to look at the problem of, I am here and I want to be here. Then you're going to break that problem down into constituent smaller problems, and solve each of those problems, right. each time going, am I closer or further away, closer or further away, until where I am and where I want to be are the same, right? are the same place. Brilliant. It's great at that. It's great at making up a schedule. I have all these things to accomplish today. How do I schedule them together? Right. Now, now we take our unhappiness and we classify it as a problem. Right. And so now we're shining a light, shining a light on where we are and where we want to be. I'm at unhappiness. I want to be at happiness. So I've just... I've just delineated the vast distance between the two. And then my mind says, oh, here's the problem. What, are the, what is this problem made up of? Well, you're a horrible person. Right, you're a loser. You, you're a loser. Your life is never going to change. You, you didn't do that thing that you should have. Right. You're, you're, you know, you're 20 pounds overweight. Right. You're too fat. You're too short. Nobody you're too you. tall. You, nobody <laughs> loves you. You're too old. You right. missed your... Sh all right. those things. Right. The mind is just doing what it's... Wow. trained to do but yeah. we're using it for the we're, we're using the wrong tool for the job now do you think that is specific to alcohol no I think that's specific to being a human I think that's the, the, the problems inherent in being an alcoholic or an addict are the problems of being human except they're on steroids yeah you know and someone who is an alcoholic takes comfort in the feeling that alcohol gives them and allows them to escape from that dilemma right, right. for moments of time. Well, this, do you think the steroids cause him to need alcohol? That was my experience. Yeah. It was like, ah, I'm missing something. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, and my experience was that, and it worked really really well for a really, really well. long time for, and yes. then it turned and it took that original problem I had and multiplied it by 10, 20, 100 whatever it was depending on the day but before that it was a solution not a problem but it was insane that it just it seemed like overnight it was not at all overnight right. but it seemed like overnight it switched it su switched from being a solution to being the problem the, yeah the problem the original problem exacerbated but here's a great thing about that when the problem is alcohol or alcoholism, that's got a solution. Yeah. And it's one solution with you know, many different facets, but it's one solution. If I'm just screwed up, yeah. uh, well, oh man, that's way too big a, uh, an issue to deal with. Yeah, no, and I think that that's probably why I formed my life around it, is it was a great relief to go, all this stuff? You mean it's got, well, and then I took it a little too far because I thought, oh my God, well, I'm never going to, it's kind of like the way you thought of the movie and I thought of the book. I'm never going to have another problem because here I, now I don't drink, I don't do drugs. Yep, 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 yep. And it was a great shock to me 
to discover that I still had problems. And, yeah, and it's like, not only do you still have problems, but for the first time in your life, you're actually going to look at them and deal with them and but, walk through them. as it turns out, that's in a very efficient way. You know, I never understood before why I would stay depressed for, you know, a year or two or whatever. Turns out, if you actually just face it and you don't numb it out, uh -huh. you can actually get over you it actually pretty walk fast. Through, yeah, whatever it it's is. It's amazing yeah. how fast they, they pass, you know? So, okay. And so, meditation. So, you came to that at what point? Um, well, I'd, I'd been uh, off drugs and alcohol for a very long time, like uh, 16 years. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd been meditating for about 20 years, because I started trying to meditate before I ever stopped drinking and using. Um, and I'd been to India a couple times. I, you know, I, I really tried to change, but I was still there was still something broken in me. Mm -hmm. There was something broken, and again, I hadn't had that. I'd had a lot of spiritual experiences, and I'd been able to not drink or use, but I was still miserable a good share of the time, because. We're trained to feel the way we feel. We're, we're trained by society, by our parents, and by the ideas that we embrace as we're growing up, the ones that make sense to us. We build a, a structure that, can, that causes us to continue to have the experience we're having. Right. And at about you know, 16 years sober, I, you know, a friend said to uh, my, my partner Adele, um, I went to this guy, he gave me a word, I think the word, it makes me happy. And I said, yeah, let me know how that works out for you. Right, right. And it just sounds ridiculous. Yeah, you of course. Know? And uh, she said, no, 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 we should go check this out. So we went, we sat down in this room, this, this apartment in West Hollywood. And, That's where I learned, yeah. Yeah. And I looked around at the people, and I looked at the pictures on the wall, and I said, yeah, this isn't for me. For the, before the guy even came out to talk, I left. Oh, wow. <laughs> And the guy who had been greeting us by the name of Will Dalton. Yeah, I know Will. Um, that's how I, yeah, I, was his, I went to his yoga class. That's how I found the whole thing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So he, he had just welcomed us, and we were going out before he Oh, you're went, right. You made Adele go, too? Yeah. Like, well, I know. I said, you, I'll come back and pick you up. She said, no, I'll go with you, you know? Right. And so then another friend of ours learned from that session and said, you know, I got this word. I think it, and it makes me feel better. And so a month later... He, this guy was back in town, so we went back and actually listened to him this time. Well, and I do think hearing Tom talk, um, it's not. It, I'm not it, the, listening to you talk does remind me of Tom, mm. um, which I mean with as the greatest compliment Thank on you. earth. Um, but what you know, because I was dragged there, kicking and screaming, and once I yeah. heard him talk, I was like, sign me up for whatever this is. Yeah, this he makes, was something so, makes sense. He was so articulate and had that same that same sort of demeanor. Where the thing I noticed the first time I heard him talk was. No matter what question people asked, and people asked what I consider to be some pretty dumb questions, uh -huh. he had a very he had an answer for everything in this very calm, brilliant way. Equanimity, absolute equanimity. Just yeah, just like yeah. whatever. There's no reason to get upset here. So you heard him talk. Now, actually, the night that I heard him talk, I brought someone to the talk who got him upset. You did. I, you can get him upset. He, uh, we were. We went, and a, another couple came with us, and the one member of that couple was a, a, a very religious mm -hmm. and was uh, 
threatened mm -hmm. by it. And so after, during the question and answer yeah. period, he said, where does faith come into this? And Tom began to say, well, you know, we don't really deal with faith. We ask you to trust your own experience. And he said, well, we don't really deal with faith. And uh, our friend said, oh, that's too bad. And Tom said, so I, I think we've had enough uh, questions and answers. And uh, if you're interested, you know, you can talk to Will and left the room. Really? So he wasn't really upset, but he it was like, yeah, okay, I'm done. Right, right, right. That's, I guess, his version of getting upset. Yeah, that was his version of so getting upset. So you, uh, you got a mantra? Well, so I, I wasn't going to learn because I didn't want to pay money for this stuff. Right. You're not supposed to pay for spiritual teaching. I don't know where that belief comes from, but everyone has it. And... So I wasn't going to learn, and our friend said, oh, God, call this number. And I called the number, and it was Tom. And so I told Tom my issues, because mm -hmm. I, I heard him, and it made perfect sense. It was like, yeah, I'd like that, but I am not going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. you know? And I told him that, and he said, well, you know, I have yet to come up with a way to continue to make myself available as a teacher without getting paid for it. He said, right. and, and you can't possibly pay for the practice. You're paying for my availability. If I weren't charging, then I would have to get a job in Kansas City or somewhere. Right. You know, not Kansas City, but that's what he said, just right. to make it, you know, poignant. Right. Um, and, you know, and also the, the, the fee was set by the student, and, uh, yeah. you know, it was, it was like, and it, it made enough sense to me, and I heard the truth in what he was saying. So that I did. I went the next day and I, I, I got a mantra and learned how to use it. And immediately something shifted. Something was different. Something was absolutely different than any other time that I had that uh, day? tried to. That day, something shifted. Something changed. While you yeah. were meditating after? Yeah. The meditation itself right. was, took me to a place that I had struggled to find. Right. Um, and had stumbled across a couple of times. You know, and, and it was a real big difference that, you know, in my earliest days of meditating, before I learned this practice, I always thought meditation, like alcohol, was a way to get out of where I was, get away mm -hmm. from where I was. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as you know, this is a way to be exactly where you are. You know, so it's... Yeah, I have a theory that I do it wrong, but yeah. Because I, I do think of it as a little bit of an escape. It's an escape from the thoughts. Yeah. It's an escape and from the feelings. Into it's, the moment. Um, we can talk about yeah, that. Yeah, no. I mean, yeah, because it's, it's, um, yeah, I've always had this sort of paranoia that, that I'm doing it wrong. I've talked to Tom about it a million times. Everyone has yeah. this paranoia. Yeah. It's so effortless. It, it's, it's so effortless. It absolutely is. And it's so subtle because it's on the subtle realms Right. of thought and it's it's because and we both you know me with the movie you with the book we define ourselves by doing right and and also by thinking which is a more you know which is the precursors to doing right and this is about having ourselves experiencing ourselves as and defining ourselves as being as opposed to doing. Right. And so the mind, which is going to lose power by this happening, is going to say, this isn't working. This isn't, you know, it's going to tell me the thing that, that are going to keep it in charge. Right. You know? Right. So. 
Yeah, so so you had no plans to become a meditation teacher. I at certainly that point. did not. Yeah. But here's what happened. You know, I just I, I learned the meditation and I was told that I could return and uh, sit through the course again whenever I wanted to. You know, that I was prepaid for life. Mm-hmm. I also um, uh, the next time he came to town I went back and paid him more money because I had gotten so much from right. it. You know, and the great thing about learning at uh, this stage of life that I learned was that I would already tried virtually every other thing there was to make me happy, none of it had worked, so when this started to give me that experience I was like, ah, I'm not giving this up. Right. So I just, I would, I would sit and take notes in his, in, in, in the class. Yeah, I did that too. And I would hear these brilliant things and then I would walk out the door and forget them. Right. Again, because the patterning was so deep and so dark for so long that I would have this experience of meditation and then still have this mind that was cloudy and muddy and going in the direction of, you suck, you should die. Right. You know? And I just kept going back, going back, going back, and um, I ended up, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's because I was raised on a farm, rural, whatever, but I started helping out. I started helping set up chairs, and then eventually I started helping, you know, sign people up, and and then I started helping with the the ceremony that is done, and and then at a certain point, um, Tom was going to train some teachers, and he said, "So you're going to come and take the training?" I said, "I'm an actor, man, just, you know." Right. And he said, "No, you're a teacher. The only question is, you know, are you going to be an ignorant teacher or a well-informed teacher?" You know, you're a teacher just by your presence here, you know, because you're an example of what this is. And I said, I'm an actor. You're the guru. Get me a series. Right, um, right, right. And, and I didn't get one. Uh, I did give up. You've gotten many. I, 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 at the time, though, I did right. have to give up a role in Trailer Park of Terror to be able to become a teacher. <laughs> That's an amazing title. Was that a movie? That was it, was a movie. A, it was a movie. I think it was uh, for at least a moment available on pay-per-view. Were you going to be the... Oh, you, I was one of the... You're, you you do the villain role. I'm, yeah, I was going to be a villain. It was a horrible job. I wouldn't have done it if I... Had... So so instead, and you went to India? Went to India. the yeah. whole thing. Yeah, I went to India for the... That was my fourth trip to India. Um, and then, you know, spent a few weeks there and then came back to a place in uh, Arizona and went through this intensive training. And the, how long ago was that? That was in 2007, so... And so, and then uh, you started teaching here in L.A., and you teach in New York, too? Uh, I teach here in New York, uh, Montana, Mexico. I taught a course in Chihuahua, which is like the hotbed of the, you know, the, the narco wars. Um, how'd, you get, how'd you get anyone to sign up there? Well, I, I have a, uh, one of my students who's training to be a teacher with me now is, uh, she's from uh, Mexico City, and her parents... Well, actually, she's from Chihuahua, and her sister is in Mexico City now, and, and she knows a lot of people in Chihuahua, so we went down there. She went down as my, uh, as my uh, interpreter, and, and uh, we uh, gave this talk together at, a, uh, at a, a recovery house, you know, and just talked to them about spirituality and meditation and stuff. And so, and how many, how many, cor- you do it the same way that I was introduced to you. Give a, you give a complimentary lecture. Yes, there's a, there's an uh, introductory talk. Right. Uh, about 45 minutes right. or so, an hour, and then, and then uh, those who care to sign up and they, 
usually it's the four days just following that. It's about an hour the first day, one-on-one. Right. You get a mantra, you learn how to use it, and then there are three days of follow-up. Right. Uh, and those, are, those sessions are about an hour and a half, and you learn you know, how to, how to do the meditation, what to do when X, Y, and Z occurs, and, you know, and how to really work it into the fabric of your life so that you can use it, because it's, it's terribly useful. I mean, as, as you well know, no one does something like this for an extended period of time unless they're really gaining from it. Because I don't meditate because, it's, because I'm a good boy, you know. Well, okay, this is an interesting thing, because I remember when the very, you know, when I first heard Tom talk, he basically said, this is how I remember it anyway, if you start doing this, people are going to come up to you and go, God, what is your secret? You are so calm. And the way I feel, whatever, 10 years into meditation, 20 Uh minutes a day, you know, religiously, no one not only has ever said that to me, but I don't think they ever will say that to me. Like, I'm just not... Someone people will say that to, and so, the, and the reason I do it is I just really enjoy it, I just really like it. Uh huh. And oh, there's so many things I could say here, but don't people people? I bet people come up to you and tell you secrets, and they tell you things, and then you go like. They they say like I don't know why I just told you that constantly, but I've always been like that. Always, I okay. was always the person that you know after the big family dinner, I'd be like, "Mom, did you know that Aunt blah 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 had an abortion when she was twenty three? You know, like <laughs> I have just always been that person. Okay, yeah, okay. I was a journalist. That's how. That's how. That's what I was good at. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. So, and, and let me ask you: have, in in the ten years, have you ever got an advanced technique? I do. I have an advanced mantra. Oh, good. good yeah, good, good. I got it at like two or three years. Yeah, that's what I've been doing. But I will tell you something weird. So and so and so for years, and I I just was like I just like doing this, and I, and I did it a little bit workaholically. Like um, I noticed because I had always wanted to write a book, always, and I never had the discipline or the patience or whatever. You know, it's been I've published five books in my ten years of meditation. Wow. I mean that so. And so what I noticed was I used to be spent by 5.30. Now, if I meditate at 5.30, I've got another four or five hours yeah. in me. It's like it's, you fill it's like up nice with sleep. what we call uh, adaptation energy. Uh-huh. And then you can just take that into the world and use it up. Yeah. I love so, that. But so I was sort of like, am I using this for the opposite of what I'm supposed to be doing? Oh, no. This is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be supposed to be you you know we're we're meant to go out into the world and live we're meant to this is the householders technique this is for those of us who have lives who have jobs who have families or want families who are in the world and it's a way to continually check in with and connect to that place of being within and then come back out into the world, and our operation then is more, it's going to be more connected to that place of pure being, which means it's going to be more aligned with nature, with what's actually going on here. Right. So that's exactly what we're meant to be doing. This is our assignment, really. But I did notice, I would say really recently, 
that I was that I was reacting differently to, to things. And I was uh-huh. like, did it just take ten years? Because people would say, I mean, I've been meditating two months, and I and I, I never get angry anymore, and blah, 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 you know, and I never noticed anything like that. But I swear to God, the cumulative effect now. Well, there's there's also a thing, uh, uh, yes, and I think there's there's a thing that that has been really really uh, valuable for me that I really had to continually remind myself of is that there's this phenomenon of stress release. Right. As we, you know, every time we've had an overwhelming experience of life, a stress has been stored in the cells of our body. And, you know, I was attacked by a Doberman when I was 11. Now, from that moment forward, if I saw a Doberman, whether he was chained up or not, I would have a biochemical response, as right. if I were in danger. The same as I used to have seeing a police car in the rearview mirror. Right, right, right. You know, years after I'd done anything criminal, I, right. you right. know. Right. So that's actually structured in the cells of our body so that when, you know, this stimulus occurs, this response occurs, a maladaptive response. Right. Now, in meditation, we rest deeply enough that those stresses begin to release, and coming out, they feel to some degree the way they did going in. If we're not able to remind ourselves of that, then we just think we're being angry or sad or scared or whatever it is. But in fact, again, when we can see that as just something that's occurring in the body and I am this thing back here observing it, then I can start to let go of it even more quickly and stop defining myself by these Reactions and then eventually stop having those reactions altogether. Right, right. That's interesting. So I'll, I'll bet that you're even further along than you think because you're still a little bit pressed up against the front of the bus. Right, right. If you, right. you know, if, if you're sitting at the, right at the front of the bus and it's going 30 miles an hour, everything's going by so quickly you can't really see it. But if you step back, right, five, ten feet. And look out, you can see things as they're coming up, you can pre- prepare for them, you can notice the scenery as you're going by it. Right. You know. Right, right. It, it's sort of that feeling. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember I remember from his the first thing I heard Tom say, the thing that was that that uh, it's not just traumatic experiences that build up stress, but that, you know, when a um you know, basically, like, if a car cuts us off and we're driving, you know, we're built for fight or flight. So our system floods with enough adrenaline to fight off the wild boar. Uh-huh. But we're in a car. All we have to do is step on the brakes. We don't need all that adrenaline. So it just gets stored yes, in our body. Yes, exactly. Which is fascinating. Yeah, and, and what also happens is that whenever we have a traumatic or near-traumatic experience, we also take an inventory of every sensory input at that moment. So that the next time those chord changes are playing on the radio and it's that time of day and, and I can smell this new car smell, whatever it is that happened, when you know, I'll be having a, a, a reaction without knowing wow, that I'm yeah, having it. Get, yeah, that's you know, and sometimes you like smell someone's aftershave and yeah. you'll either feel averse to them or attracted to them right. having nothing to do with them, right, having right. to do with your father wore that or your right. uncle did or something right, like that. Right, right, right. So, okay, and so you, so, so what, how much of your life is teaching meditation and how much is acting? Really? About, about, you know, I go through periods of time where I just, I'm, I'm just teaching and then there, you know, and then I just got done, you know, doing uh, uh, three gigs right in a row that took me away from, from teaching and... What were you on? 
Um, I did a. I, I recur on this show, uh, Sons of Anarchy. Right, right. Um, and I, uh, I did a. Uh, they're doing a DVD release of uh, a series I was on, and that, and I did a thing that I can't talk about for that. Um, and then I uh, went away and did a, a film in uh, North Carolina. Um, Called River Guard with uh, Brett Cullen, um, and uh, you know, so that wasn't teaching meditation at all, right? Um, and you know, now I'm back here, and uh, you know, I'll be teaching again next week. I taught last week, and going to New York uh, the first week of October and teaching there. And um, the great thing, you know, the great thing about teaching for me, and again, this is. I, I have to remind myself, and whenever I talk to somebody about uh, having an issue with drugs or alcohol, I have to remind myself to tell them, like you said, it's hard to imagine that I'm that guy I was describing. Yeah. I really have to make a point to remember and speak to the fact that it used to be so dark in here. The despair in which I lived was so huge that I my whole life was just about trying to climb out of it, trying yeah. to just get my nose enough above water that I wasn't drowning. And that's a blessing because I had to really run after the spiritual part of this thing and really insist on making it work for me. And, and of course, the best way to learn anything is by teaching it. And so I'm continually confronted with the need to turn my thoughts around, the need to, you know, see the glasses half full, the need to reframe my experience of myself or others right. in a way <clears throat> that reflects the spiritual truth of life rather than the individual reactivity right. of life. Right. Yeah. And so teaching continually puts me in that place. And then the writing that I send out a daily thought that I have to write and that too, I have to. Right. The only I, parameter I set for myself was if someone actually reads through it, I want them to at least have the opportunity to feel better at the end of it than they did at the beginning. Right. You know, so that means I have to walk myself through that as well. Right. And, the, and then you accompany those with photographs that you take you yeah. know, every time? Y yeah, oh yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's just fun. Um, and, so, and so people, if they, if they want to find you, Jeff Kober Meditation, K-O-B-E-R, K uh -huh. and they can find out about how to sign up for classes. Yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a Eventbrite thing on the front that tells where I'm going to have an intro talk and when. And um, this is this is fantastic. We still have the question, the question from the internet. Okay. Which I think is an interesting one. Is about dealing with trauma and loss in recovery. So this was actually I, I usually take a question from Twitter. This was one I got emailed to me. Um, how, well, I mean, I, and I wonder if dealing with trauma and loss in recovery is different than dealing with trauma and loss not in recovery. What are your hmm. thoughts? Uh, is it different? In, it's it's probably different in that you don't have the go-to right. bottle. You know, I remember uh, my father uh, 
had a heart attack and we were just supposed to start sugar beet harvest and he had been out drinking the night before and I was pissed off at him and then I uh, you know, uh, the guy that was helping us out said, I don't know, you might want, because he wasn't, wasn't getting out of bed, and I was like, we got work to do. And he said, I think he, you need to take him to the doctor. And so I drove him to the doctor really angry. Right. You know, because his drinking was keeping us from working, and they, I got him to the doctor, and they just threw him in an ambulance and took him to the hospital. And I was like, oh, what an ass. Right, you know? right, right, right. Um, and where I went was uh, Sunny O'Day's, which was this great little bar in Laurel, Montana, and I had a beer and a shot and a cigarette and there was a tall good-looking bartender and it was just like you know that was what a man did right you know and uh you can't do that if you're in recovery so it's different in that regard but did that really work for, i mean for it did that afternoon it it, it worked for that afternoon it was, and it was uh you know it felt like a it it, it felt important mm-hmm. but it's interesting that i was angry at him for what drinking had done to yeah, him exactly. and to me, and then I answered it with a drink. Right. That's you know, and a cigarette, which both of which contributed to his heart attack. Right. So it's funny the things we don't see. Weird. Yeah. Yes. But you know, trauma and loss. I think it, it, it. Also, I think in recovery, you have to ask yourself questions that examine your place in the cosmos and. Uh, if there's meaning to all of this. And that's where I think the difference really can arise. That's where, you know, a trauma and loss is it's really about me. It's not about that. You know, if, if I lose a friend, they've got their own path, you know, and, and it's when I experience the loss, it's me that has the loss. Right. Uh, Deepak Chopra in Life After Death uh, says this beautiful thing that when someone that the only person experiencing death is the person left behind, that the person dying actually experiences being born into a different realm. Right. And by reframing it, we can then uh, really have a better, ch- you know, in, in, in reframing it in some kind of a philosophy that makes sense to us, we can have a way of processing it. The problem with, with trauma and loss is that if I don't have a way of understanding it or a way of uh, seeing it as a part of the flow of life, then again, I put that mind on the problem of why is this happening? Right. Why is this happening to me? Why did it happen to them? They're so young, they're, so, they, you know, they're good, only the good die young, all these things. And then I start building a picture of the world right. that is not a safe place, that is random, or that punishes people like me, I must be bad if I'm being punished, you know, all these sorts of thoughts, that's suffering. Right. That is not necessary. Right. The pain of loss, you have to experience, you have to feel it, whether you're a meditator or not, whether you've been meditating for a year or 20 years, you're still going to experience the pain of loss, but when you can frame it in such a way that you can see it as a natural progression of nature, the natural evolution of nature, that we're all going to die. Right. It's just a question of when, and and one of the shocking things when someone dies is to, to recognize that I'm going to die too. Right, right. You know, when I can step back from that and just have the feelings that I'm going to miss that person, that's a, a uh, that's a a pain and a loss that can be experienced and can be shared. Right. It's it's, yeah. it's not the suffering of 
all it's the questions. Manageable. It's manageable. It's manageable. And the beauty is, I'm sorry, I just no, cut yeah, you No, I wasn't going to say anything. I'm so glad you have going. Keep. And the beauty is that, like, I, I teach Vedic meditation, and the, the, the Vedic worldview is that there's this thing we'll just call nature that makes up everything the entirety of, of the universe, the seen and unseen. And it is flowing, and where it is flowing is always in the direction of evolution. If I can really embrace that, that means that anything that seems to be a loss is merely something being taken out of the way so that growth can occur. Mm -hmm. Whether that's me or somebody else, there's growth that is necessary, and that there's a constant flow of creation happening, and all creation involves loss. If I want new clothes, I have to clean out my closet so right. that there's room for it. Right. You know, uh, halfway through this world of you know me being sober, I have this humiliating and painful divorce, in which my life was burned to the ground. Probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Right because it made me open to whatever came next. And whatever came next was, you know, this beautiful woman and a, 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 a practice of meditation and a life that really feels beyond anything I ever thought I'd be able to feel. Perfect timing. I don't know if Adele heard that. <laughs> but <laughs> this is, I think this is great. I think we've covered everything. This is so much fun. Wasn't that fun? That was really fun. Okay, so I'm going to really stop recording.